0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is a teacher, vice principal, and counselor who wrote her debut teen novel while working full-time and raising five kids. Here she is to introduce herself.
1: So I'm Tanya Christensen, and I am currently a vice principal at an elementary school in Creston. And I, for 19 years, I've actually worked at the school. And before that, um, I was always a teacher doing grade seven. I've taught kindergarten, uh, special education, alternate education. And for a, after I got my master's degree in counseling, I was, I've been the counselor for a long time. Tanya's
0: book, A Soft Place to Fall, is a finalist for the 2022 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. In our conversation, we talk about what drew Tanya to write this book, the challenges of making time to write around a busy schedule, and how you keep hope your book will be published amidst a lot of rejection. Tanya starts our conversation with a reading from A Soft Place to Fall.
1: So my book, A Soft Place to Fall, I am going to read a little bit from the prologue. I don't call it the prologue, because I know um, from teaching students for a long, long time, most of them skip the prologues and think they're kind of like the acknowledgement. So I called it before. We rolled into some little town the day before my fifth birthday, and the guys set up rides late into the night. I was the first to rise and wake mom up. She sat on the trailer steps wearing fluffy winter boots and a pink robe. She held her cigarette in one hand while clutching a blue mug filled with coffee I was bundled in my red snowsuit. She hummed happy birthday while I played with my cars on the ground in front of her, scraping the piles of frozen dirt together to form roads. I watched as she inhaled her cigarette. Her eyes closed and she raised her head, pulling her cheeks in tightly before releasing a fume of smoke into the cold air. Mom took her last sip of coffee, which meant we could start our walk around the empty fairground. I like the quiet of these winter mornings, just me and mom while the carnival slept. Mom and dad met when she was 19. Every May long weekend, the fair passed through Breton for Lilac Festival. Dad was one of the guys who traveled with the carnival, a carny. He'd made his way around Canada with the carnival since he left home at 15, doing pretty much everything from restocking porta potties with toilet paper to selling corn dogs at the concession. When he and Mom talked for the first time, he was running the zipper, still working his way up the ranks at the age of twenty-one. Mom grew up in Breton. I guess she was one of the girls who hung out with the Carnies each year, and their fling that May long weekend led to me. When she found out she was pregnant, she quit her waitressing job at Barclay's Bar and Grill, enjoyed Dad in the parade of trucks and trailers that moved from town to town. My destiny was decided. My first home was a carny trailer, and I spent 12 years on the road. Mom was kind of a celebrity at the carnival. One night, when all the guys were sitting around the trailer, she was singing along to one of Dad's CDs. After the first verse, the talking stopped. Gracie Ray, you ought to make some cash with that voice of yours, one of the guys said. You sound like an angel. Dad's buddies persuaded her to stand out front of the fairgrounds with a bowl, and Mom nervously did. It wasn't long before money overflowed and people came back the next day for more. Eventually, the carnival sold tickets and people showed up just to hear her sing. My fifth birthday was on a Friday, February 24th, 1989. My party started when the carny guys woke up. I opened the tiny trailer fridge to peek at the cake mom and I had baked the night before. I slammed the fridge door and accidentally dropped my cars on the floor hoping dad would get up earlier than usual. Finally, mom let me take him a mug of coffee. I tucked his cigarette above my ear like I watched dad do and held his lighter tightly between my teeth as I carefully balanced the coffee, spilling with each small step. He sat up sleepily and rescued the mug from my shaky five-year-old hands. I put the cigarette in his mouth and he held it forward for me to light. I'm five today, daddy, I reminded him. "'You're right, son. It's your birthday,' he said, laughing as he scuffed my hair up with his free hand. "'What do you want to do for your birthday?' he asked, blowing a perfect circle of smoke toward the roof. "'We're going to have a party, Daddy, when all the guys wake up. They're invited. "'Me and Mama made a cake last night.' "'A cake? Well, it will be a party then, won't it?' Dad gave me another head scuff. "'I waited for the carnival to come alive.' By noon, Mom was banging on the trailer doors and yelling at Dad's buddies to hurry up. They dragged their lawn chairs over, one by one, till most of them were gathered in a circle in front of our trailers. Just as Mom headed in to get the cake, Bruno said, First things first, Gracie, the little man's got to light us up. It was my job to light their cigarettes. I was their entertainment, the only kid living with the crew. They held their smokes between their teeth, and I made my way around the circle with a lighter. Mom stepped out of the trailer with the cake, placing it on the small folding table in front of me. And everyone sang, happy birthday. Then I opened my Spider-Man pajamas. I didn't know this would be my very last birthday cake until I turned 15. I never imagined it was the last time I'd ever bake with Mom. And it's about at this point where Creighton, the main character of the story, where his life kind of starts to turn upside down. (laughs) So
0: that's a good place to stop. Great. Um, And I'm not sure if you've listened to the podcast at all, but if you have, you might have a bit of a a sneak peek at my, my challenging question of this year, which is, if you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, which would it be and why?
1: Well, I guess I one Hmm. I really um I guess what jumps in my mind is Lord of the Flies and I think as a teenager for some reason that book um really inspired me I think I was fascinated a bit about the psychology behind it all and how um somebody who like when there's no uh structure or no boundaries I guess what can happen when a group of students um take control or have to find a way to survive. So I think that always has stuck in the back of my mind, even as a teacher and just about how important, um, sort of routine and predictability and those kinds of things are. So that was interesting for me.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I want to ask you actually a little bit more about, because this is a a South Place to Fall is a YA um, teen book. Um, what other books were you drawn to as a young reader? outsiders. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I think I like books, I guess, about teens who are maybe struggling, who are kind of a little bit more off the beaten path, like just not the regular kids. So I think I've always been drawn to sort of kids who face some challenges or have some experiences that set them aside from everybody else.
0: Yeah. And we really see that in the book, um, as you, like, you introduce uh Creighton in your reading um and we can see right from the get-go that his life is far from ordinary and he comes into contact with other students who seem uh who are for whatever reason outside of the school the regular Mm -hmm. school system Mm -hmm. and I wondered if you could talk about um writing those characters and why it was important to give those types of students a voice through your book Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I think as a teacher, I was always drawn to uh, the kind of challenging students uh, who definitely made my day a challenge, <laughs> I guess. And I watched a lot of students where there was kindness or a lot of adults who show kindness. And I think for me, like having a chance to work with a lot of these kids um, for a long period of time, I realized sort of the connection and the relationship you could have and how what an impact that could have on those students. So I think I just wanted to give um, them a voice and get people to empathize with them, like find a way where people could really connect with them through a book.
0: Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about how the book started, because I mean, teaching is not an easy job. You probably come home tired. And so how did you manage to make time to write a book uh, around mm-hmm. such a busy career?
1: I know, I actually <laughs> don't know. I have five kids. I have five kids. So it was a busy time. I started years ago. And I think it was just always in the back of my mind, like it was such an important part of my life Where um, these students at school and I was always having to think about how I could reach them or how I could help them enjoy school and be happy and so I think I spent so much time thinking about that that I just always in the back of my mind I felt like I needed to write a book like I felt like I had a story Um, even though it's totally fiction but it's still based on the feelings and the experiences I had so I started a long time ago and then I think when my kids all had sort of left home and went to university um, it was something I look forward to every day it was just uh, like a I guess a bit of an escape and a bit of a way to fill that empty nest (laughs) with something of my own that I could do and so I would just do little bits every day and on spring break and Christmas and the summer
0: <laughs> how did the book evolve because i know that, like when you're working on a project for such a long time it always kind of shifts and takes mm-hmm, a, a mm-hmm. new shape how did how was it when you began and how did it change mm-hmm. as you kind of went through it
1: well i don't like i would never say i'm a writer like i don't i didn't know how to write a book or anything it's not like i set out thinking oh i'm an author i'm going to be an author i really wanted to write a story and i was really hoped like at that, my goal was obviously I was going to get it published and that's where I was aiming for but I started off just with a simple idea and then the characters kind of took over for me for sure like I don't ever remember planning out like what I would name them or anything they just sort of rolled out in a way and that's what they became and then they became like honestly so a part of my life where you think about them all the time And they just become very real. I think definitely once I, I mean, I had got, when I sent it away to a billion publishers, obviously you get a ton of rejection letters because I don't have, I didn't have an agent or anything. Um, And so once I actually got a publisher and started working with them, my story definitely changed because I had to cut a lot and then I had to add a lot. So, yeah.
0: How did you how did you keep the hope that it would be published when you were dealing with all the I mean, that's the hardest part is dealing with the rejections and Mm, how did you stay positive through all that?
1: Um, well, I always thought, oh, this would be bad if I don't get it published, because I kind of had taught all my students and my own kids, like, if you want something really badly, and you work really hard for it and put in the effort, you can make it happen. So I kept thinking, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this happen. I think um, when a lot of the rejection letters are just very standard form letters, which I don't know if they've read any parts of it like I don't know if they have time to and I mean some you never hear anything back and then I got one rejection letter that I looked at it as hope (laughs) I just thought this the Peter Carver from Red Deer Press had kind of made it very personalized and um it kind of almost gave me feedback about what I could do he, it was, he was rejecting it, but in my mind, I felt like, no, he is, he actually likes it. I just need to make changes. And so I honestly rewrote it probably two more times and then sent it back directly to him and said, these are, I've done all of these things. Could you look at it again? And then I got a letter saying they were going to publish it. So. It only takes one. (laughs) It was just looking, reading between the lines and me looking at that as hope.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Something that I I was really taken with when I was reading the book was there's a lot of big, uh, big topics, uh, for lack of a better word, addressed in the book, like sexual assault and teen pregnancy. What did you try and keep in mind when you were approaching those topics that would make mm-hmm. them, uh, I guess like not too overwhelming or manageable for the teen reader as they were going mm-hmm. through and getting to know these characters and investing in, in kind of their mm-hmm. outcomes.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like I was fairly cautious. Like I feel, I mean, I'm a counselor, a clinical counselor as well. And I mean, I am an ele- I've been a counselor in elementary school and had a private practice. But I tried to be very aware of like what I thought teenagers would be able to manage or would be able to handle. Or if they had those experiences, I wanted them to have some hope with it. I didn't want it to be like if it was a trigger or if it, um, you know, made them kind of relive some trauma, I wanted them to be able to see how they could grow from it. So I sort of kept that as my Basis and wanted it to be realistic, like nothing happens overnight. It's not a quick fix. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Were you? Did you share your book with any like students or anything like? Hi, Cause you, I mean, some people don't have access to their mm-hmm. target audience, and you are are with your your readers yeah. all the time. Um,
1: I not with students because I'm in a elementary school, mm-hmm. K okay. to seven, yeah. and I I really do think it's more a teen. Um, I don't even think I would read it with a grade, like, I think grade sevens can totally handle it on their own, but as a teacher, I wouldn't read it out loud.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and as I was in high school, I also had kids, my kids were young adults. So some of them read it. Um, and I had, I did have some other teachers read it. So, or, and bounced ideas off. I mean, I think that like it's purely fiction and there's no characters who resemble anyone that I've taught or anything like that. But at the same time, there, it's very much related to experiences or feelings that I've observed or watched or how I think people process them or how I process them or whatever. So yeah. I try to keep it real in that sense, but but also purely fiction.
0: Yeah. I thought it was interesting, too, that you brought in the, the restorative justice part of of things into the book, because I think that's something that's I mean, punishment in schools wasn't done in that way. And even in communities, when teens did something wrong, it wasn't, you know, how to make it right in the community so that they mm-hmm. can, um, you know, not live with that shame and not mm-hmm. repeat those experiences. Why was it important to kind of include that process in the book?
1: I think because, again, it's fiction, but I wanted it to be real. Like, I wanted it to be how I thought it should be handled, I guess. Like, what would help those students? And even though the kids in the book kind of mocked it a little bit at the end, I still think the process was helpful. Like, kids, I think, would just sort of mock something like that, or they might say the things they need to say. But regardless, I think as you're going through that process, it would still be beneficial uh, route. And I think because all those kids so much needed connection and needed relationship, and those are the kinds of things that would actually help them rather than punishment. Like I think Schooner um, having to do community hours, even though that's punishment because it was kind of punishment it was it sort of fit the crime and then it actually helped him in his life so I wanted it to keep it real and I guess so that everyone could see different perspectives like and how to to view things differently
0: yeah I wanted to ask something I'm always curious about when I chat with um like YA authors and uh, kids book authors who are also teachers, because you have kind of insider knowledge of the books that are being taught Mm -hmm. in schools, and also you had, you raised five kids and probably saw the books they were reading too, what were you hoping that your, your book could offer uh, readers that maybe wasn't being offered um, Mm -hmm. at school or that they weren't getting taught?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think I just wanted to get some insight into kids that sort of the, the large number of kids don't generally associate with or hang out with. Um, they're, the kids who have behavior challenges are definitely the people that um, make the day challenging for students and for teachers and EAs and everyone. So I really wanted them to sort of have some empathy and to kind of be able to look at the big picture so I think that is huge. But I also wanted those kids to see that there is life after this, like that. A lot of these kids will feel like just because their life, they've had a crappy life, um, that's their they're doomed. Right. That, and whereas I really see it as they can use it in their life and really sort of rise above and have some resilience, and some hope. So I really wanted it to be that for them sort of some inspiration to kind of keep going and be able to do something with your life. And I think also just for adults, I would hope adults can kind of look at it, the big picture and maybe take something from it as well.
0: Yeah. Um, I watched some of the video of your presentation at the Nelson Public Library, and you um, mentioned the writing process as kind of being important because it's that passion and something to look forward to Mm -hmm. in your day. And uh, now that you're not working on this book, have you started writing another one to, uh, you know, fill that time?
1: (laughs) I guess, okay, after I finished that book, I got the job of vice principal, and I really thought I just need to focus for a bit and just really give that job my best um, and get settled in that. I definitely have a book in my mind. Like I know sort of where I'm going. I have started it, but I haven't like dove in really deeply yet. I'm just sort of, and summer's here. So I'm thinking that's kind of what I'll do, but I definitely miss having my just writing to come home to. So it's here. It's like coming.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yep, most A lot of the writing happens up there. So it's good yeah, to take yeah. that
1: time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have started a children's book as well. So I kind of have that on the back burner. But mm-hmm. it was a really fun process. But the one thing for sure with writing is patience. Like I can't even tell you. Like I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a really patient person when it comes to life like kids I am and not life. And uh, holy moly, you just have to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. But then at the same time, that's also hope. <laughs> like when you're waiting, there's always the hope.
0: That was Tanya Christensen, author of A Soft Place to Fall. A Soft Place to Fall is a finalist for the 2022 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Close, we'll take a one-week break from chatting with the finalists of the 2022 BC and Yukon Book Prizes, and you'll hear my conversation with the Honourable Janet Austin, the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.